This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are listening to the 2012 debut album from Huntress, Spell Eater. Mmm, an interesting album, shall we say. Um, oh, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, and and a band that I had literally never even heard of before you know, you You know what drew me to them? them was their album covers. Oh, really? Their album covers are so freaking awesome that I w- happen to be, and I know people have mentioned them on the Facebook group, and I know that when I mentioned this album on the Facebook group, a couple of people were like, yeah, that's awesome, I love it, you know, um, but I was in the music store, which I told the story about how the music store didn't close, right? We, you we did, talked yes, about that. Yes. Okay, so uh, so I try to go there as much as possible and pick up new music. In fact, I just got back into vinyl. For crying out loud! Like, oh I, no, I, here we go. Yeah, I know. I went to the store <laughs> we'll be on, on TDK record store day. C nineties before you know it. <laughs> yep, the only place I went on uh, Black Friday was to the record store because I knew they were open and I knew they were they were having a sale. And so I took my son over there. And the first thing that Gary says to me is, "Oh, did you come for the dime bag limited edition vinyl?" And I was like, "What?" And he's like, yeah, they put out a Dimebag Daryl like limited edition vinyl thing for record store day. And I was like, um, I guess I did come for that. So <laughs> yeah. I ended up buying that and a bunch of other, I bought like Dawkins tooth and nail. I, I bought a, a, like a handful of vinyl and then I bought, he also had, uh, some turntables there. So I ended up buying one and, uh, that was my purchase on black Friday. So yes, I am now back into collecting vinyl and, uh, Yeah. I don't, I don't even know, but I was there. So I was there, happened to be there a couple of weeks ago or, or a couple of months ago now as it was. And he had all three of Huntress's albums there. And so I grabbed all three of them because I had seen, and I'd heard at least one or two Huntress songs before, but I had seen the cover for, I want to say it's static. Is that the, I think that's the newest one. That's the latest one. one yeah. Yeah, and and it looked amazing, and I was like, wow, these guys have really good covers. And then I went and looked at the other ones. I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna get these and check the. And I have completely fallen in love with this band. Like, this is the first time that since Sister Sin's quote unquote retirement, when that band kind of fell apart, that I like this. This has filled that hole in my heart. Um, Huntress has, even though they're totally different musically. Like, it definitely has uh, filled that void of band that I've discovered that I didn't even know really was around, but holy crap, are they tailor-made to my tastes? Like right, just right. fits right in that. So yeah, I, uh, I did not know a lot about them either, other than at the time I picked the album for this episode, I was listening to this one quite a bit. Right, right. Wow. Okay, well, we'll get onto that later. So for now, let's have a bit of a uh, follow-up. First of all, uh, we have just one new patron since last episode, and somebody called DP. I really hope those are your initials or do <laughs> or do I I mean I'm not sure if that's better or worse but anyway thank you for becoming better a patron better for us worse for them I think yeah <laughs> I'm not sure um and remember you know other listeners if you're not a patron yet you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to uh, support us uh, and become a patron and uh, get all the lovely perks that come with that because uh, there are so many of them um uh, what else? Oh, uh, I forgot. I realized that I forgot actually to read out a bit of feedback from the, um, Slipknot episode. No, that was the last episode, wasn't it? I'm getting, that it. was the last episode. I'm getting yep. completely, do you know, it's been so long since we recorded that I'm completely, it has been. wow, it's amazing to think that was only the last episode. So, all right, well, I will read out a couple of emails we had after the Slipknot episode. Then one is, uh, from Chris Powell 
who says the ultimate test of a great podcast is if I can listen to it, even though I hate the subject or topic. And I just listened to you guys talk for over two hours of a band I absolutely <laughs> cannot stand. <laughs> he says it's a testament to the chemistry you guys have together and your ability to connect with your fans. Great work. So thank you, Chris. Um, at Slipknot specifically, he said he says Slipknot always came off to me like a band that wanted to sound like Meshuggah, but aren't good enough to pull huh. it off. Uh, he also, and this is, this is something that came up in response on the Facebook group as well. He says, I also think that Slipknot is falsely given credit when much of that credit should be given to Fear Factory, Ooh. which is an interesting, I love Fear Factory. And he specifically cites Demanufacture, uh, as the sort of start of that sound. And that's my favorite Fear Factory album. So on the one hand, I'm a hundred percent on board with loving that, but I don't, I personally don't think that Demanufacture is what led to the sort of music that Slipknot then became and really popularized throughout the metal scene. But it's an interesting theory. Uh, anyway, he finishes, there is obviously talent in Slipknot, but I think most of their fandom comes from them dressing like ridiculous clowns and banging on beer kegs. <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of that. I mean, I'm looking at the Facebook uh, page feedback and we got a ton of feedback on the Slipknot album and it kind of fell into two camps. One that uh, really, really... I think agreed with you on the just the how much of a foundational album this particular album was and then others that were like god I hate these guys but it was interesting to hear you guys talk about them for uh 2 hours David Richardson has now started a journal I believe that he is um putting pages into in our Facebook group because he told me <laughs> to post all at once so I'm going to read a couple of his thoughts he said uh I took your advice and started writing notes in a word doc it's I'm going to it's going to be the biggest post you've ever seen uh, multi-post David. So David said a couple of things. He said, uh, the intensity of sick is so incredible. The vocals fit perfect. Uh, he said, I'm a fraud drummer because originally I never noticed the extra percussion. I just thought Joey was a monster drummer, but it's not like the extra percussion on say Mr. Bungle or sleepy time gorilla museum. He said, now I notice the extra percussion a lot, but 18 years ago, I guess I wasn't paying attention enough. Um, because that well, was something that you had pointed out. Well, and Joey is a monster drummer. That's the thing. It's, you know, it's entirely possible if you didn't know to listen to that. And yeah, I think just assume that A, Joey is great because he is. And B, that the production on the drums is really just loud and heavy. Because yeah, a lot of the percussion is matching beats on the drums. It's not like, yeah, sort of like li weird little diddly stuff that's off to the side of the stereo band, you know, right. it's like it's matching the drums to give it strength and intensity. So I don't think anybody who didn't realize before, uh, that there is percussion there, that there are, you know, two extra percussionists as well as the drummer. I don't think anybody should feel bad about not realizing that because it's not the most obvious thing. Right. And he goes on to say that he, uh, in the past, he said, Eilis was my favorite song back then. And I still like it, but I think sick is maybe better. Uh, and then he went on and sort of did a breakdown of every song. And so you can go and sort of see his, his thoughts on each one of those. But uh, that's a great post. You have Scott Parker Hall, who said, uh, just got through the podcast. Excellent work as always. Got into Slipknot before their first album by pure chance and have enjoyed their progress to Chapter 5, which I think is probably their best one so far. Uh, Kenneth White said... Uh, FYI, that Metallica show was Download 2004, where Lars couldn't play. They right. split the drumming between Dave Lombardo of Slayer and Joey Jordison. Right. And that, yeah, that's the one that I referred to. I couldn't re recall exactly where it was, but I, I've seen uh, a video. I think it's of Joey playing Creeping Death. Um, and it's amazing. I think you're right. I think I watched that too. Yeah, it is amazing. Partly because 
he plays everything Lars plays, but then he plays more as well. <laughs> so right. it's like it is the drumming from Creeping Death, but it's done in Joey's style. So there's extra blast beats and double kicks everywhere all over the place, and it, it is amazing. Uh, Tony said, very interesting episode about what has been far and away my least favorite album the band uh, and band covered so far. This is going to sound overwhelmingly negative, so apologies in advance, but it uh, <laughs> actually helped me to fully understand just why I can't stand new metal and perhaps why I stopped listening to metal for a while around the late 90s to early 2000s. Brian made a point about one of the tracks and it's uh, that it sounded forced. He said, well, I'm afraid that goes for the entire album for me. The whole, I'm singing a lovely, quiet verse, which noodles along fairly melodically, but then ramps up into the predictably shouty chorus, is one of the most irritating and fake-sounding tricks that new Metal pulls, and this album pulls it on nearly every track. Uh, it makes my toes curl every time they do it, and it comes across as a sort of canned aggression, which seems totally insincere. Uh, he goes on to sort of elaborate on that point, but I think that that is a fairly... I don't want to say universal criticism of new metal, but it's a fairly it's a, common criticism. It's a very of new common metal. criticism. But what I find really interesting about that sort of reaction is I have that reaction myself to other things. You know that like I'm not sort of immune to that kind of to feeling that myself about certain bands and records. But I never got that from Slipknot. Uh, you know, they're not one of the bands that I ever felt was forcing it. Um, See, but, the band I, yeah. I think of immediately when he says that is Linkin Park. Immediately when he says that. that's That, to me, is what Linkin Park has always sort of been in my mind, is that exact trope. Right. Where, right. Where, and I think it's because it's the most sort of textbook um, contrast between the slow, melodic, and the shouty stuff. Whereas with the Slipknot stuff, I kind of feel like the whole thing sounds like it's slightly disturbed. You know, and I don't mean the band right, disturbed. Right, even I the mean quiet like, bits. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so it feels like even the um, even the quiet parts are someone on the edge of sanity. You know, and so that it, it speaks more to me. It feels more genuine with Slipknot because it's almost like they they sort of fall off the cliff of losing control and they're barely keeping control in the quiet parts. Whereas I feel with some of those other bands, it is very deliberate, uh, melodic to shouty. And it right, feels much right. more of a, of, of a sort of a forced thing, but I, I didn't, I totally get the critique, but I, I think that there are other bands that are way more guilty of that than Slipknot. Like Megadeth. <laughs> you see, this is what I mean. This is why I find that reaction so interesting because to me that's, and we, we obviously we've talked about this before at length, but you know, that's how I feel about Megadeth and several other bands of that style. Uh, but I don't feel it about Slipknot. Whereas I'm sure, Sure, there are many people and probably more people who are, you know, have completely the opposite reaction and regard Megadeth as completely sincere and Slipknot as forcing it. So this is why I find that sort of reaction yeah, and the reaction to the episode in general. I mean, it really did divide our listeners, but I, that's what I love. I, that I mean, I me, don't know why you have to stab me in the kidneys with Megadeth. <laughs> I don't like, I'm st that kind of derailed my whole. <laughs> but, yeah, well, uh, because I couldn't help I mean, it, you know. I know it's a low blow. Yeah. But, I mean, um, I just said nice things about Paradise Lost in the past <laughs> month and then I just get the kidney punch. Um, but that to no, me. No, no, I, I totally understand that because I can completely, I think it's a valid criticism of Megadeth to question dave's sincerity with some of that smart ass anger 
that he sort of brings across. And, and I, I think especially now, even sort of more so, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I get why you could look at that that way. Yeah. And, but like I say, to me, this, the divide that we've had in response to the, this episode and to Slipknot, to me, that's the sign of a healthy fandom of a healthy genre, because it means there is something for everyone. You know, we've, we've always said metal, as far as we're concerned, is a broad church. You know, and there is room for everyone of every taste and every style under this umbrella of this thing we love overall called metal. And that kind of is, you know, evidence towards proving that, that there really is room for people who love Slipknot, people who cannot fucking stand Slipknot, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I like that. I, if we all like the too. same thing, or if the market was all entirely focused around one style of music, that's really unhealthy. You and I have it, seen that in comics, you know? No, I, I totally get that. And I don't want to invoke the professional wrestling, you know, sort of metaphor again, but, but uh, heavy metal is professional wrestling too. And so I think that there is, uh, we often get caught up in these conversations about sincerity and genuineness. And when, the only difference between metal now and metal in the days of Alice Cooper or something like King Diamond is people took the makeup off. You know, it's not, they're not wearing right, their makeup right. anymore. They're not throwing ground meat into the crowd unless they're guar. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, like it's all an act. They're all it's they're still playing showbiz. a character. Correct. And so, you know, even these um, tortured souls who are putting all of these feelings into their music, you can put genuine feelings and you can put the, um, the sort of struggles within into your music and, that music will resonate with people and they will feel that, but there is always an element of theatricality to every band, even the bands who, even Motorhead, who are the most yeah. stripped down, you know, Motorhead, everything louder than everything else. That's a persona. That's a, that's a character, you know? And, and so I, I do, when we talk about sincerity versus insincerity, I think where you can sort of see the seams in a lot of that stuff is in bands that just do a very poor job or are following what they believe is a formula to a particular genre of metal. I think that's when it starts to fall apart. Um, but make, they're all playing a character in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, you're still on stage performing Correct. for an audience. Uh, and so, yeah, even if you are the most sort of sincere and down-to-earth, no-frills band around, nevertheless, you are still performing for an audience, and that is going to have an effect. You are going to be a different person or have a different persona, as you say, on stage than off stage. That's just, you can't avoid that, I don't think. No, I don't think so either. And then one of the things I like about Slipknot is actually they brought back a little bit of the theatricality to metal when, in a lot of ways, it wasn't cool to do that. Oh, it was absolutely not cool. No, I mean, you'd had grunge and then the groove metal movement, and all of that was completely about no theatrics even which i mean that what better example than grunge as an entire genre of the theatricality of we are everything this stuff is not it's like punk you know what i mean like oh it's, yeah it's it's the character of grunge is none of this stuff is cool anymore this stripped down version is what's but it's all it, but it's, it's still a persona yeah <laughs> it's a persona exactly it, that's the persona yeah you know it's, it's the, their, the persona grunge is, is the, the stone cold steve austin of heavy metal <laughs> You know, uh, it's just a, it's just a vest and a pair of jeans and smashing beer cans together and saying that I'm not buying into the hype of all this theatricality when in the actuality you are the most theatrical. Yeah. 
Oh, man. I had one other email from Chris Calloway, who does the Creator Talks podcast, uh, which I've been on, full disclosure, but he also listens to the show. Uh, and he wrote and said, I'm a recent convert to the show and consider myself fairly open-minded. Uh, having a free music service available to members, I downloaded and listened to Slipknot's self-titled album the same day it was assigned as our homework. He says, maybe I patted myself on the back a bit too soon about being open-minded. <laughs> I had a very hard time liking it or seeing how I could listen to it a few more times to get into it. So I didn't. Then your Slipknot show was posted and I heard all these interesting things about the band that were far more intriguing than the music I heard. And upon hearing the first sample, I realised with a huge sigh of relief that I'd listened to the wrong Slipknot. Oh! <laughs> he says, I listened to a band by the same name, completely unrelated, with a, self with a self-titled album that came out in 1989. Holy crap! He says, it is not even close to the Slipknot of 1999. And I wonder, has anyone else ever made this mistake? Uh, he says, I picked up the correct album, have listened to it several times, and now really enjoy it. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, wow. yeah what a <laughs> what so a, what did he think of the actual oh so he did enjoy no, it no, at no, the he end did of the enjoy day. the, the yeah. real album yeah yeah yeah, yeah okay <laughs> that is too funny um let me grab a couple more here uh do, 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 do. kenneth said so i got in the ground floor with slipknot i bought a copy of metal hammer with a mix cd on it with the band on the front cover which has a lot for the pull roadrunner records you used to have Wondered who the band was, put the CD on to find Eyeless on it. By the time Corey was yelling, you can't see California without Marlon Brando's eyes, I was sold. I went into Dublin City Center the next day and put my money down. Uh, Don said, Slipknot didn't latch on with me until Volume 3. It was too closely associated with some unsavory people I knew for me to really give them a shot when they came around. That's a whole interesting other discussion that we could have sometime is the ways that you get introduced to certain music and how that affects your ability to even give it a chance. Right. Um, that's that, that could be a whole other discussion. Daniel said, this album is my first disappointment, but I will do a little longer point uh, as to why I disliked it so much. This is the first time I really disliked Anthony's homework. He said, that's new. Uh, and he went on to say, let's see, it's got to be down here somewhere. I think I replied to this one, didn't I? Saying like, if this is the, you know, everything else that I've suggested has been a hit up until now, I'm considering that a pretty good run. Uh, yes, he says later on, he said, I've established earlier that my baseline for a heavy metal album is the Painkiller album. So there you go. Uh, that album just fitted the part of my hormone-fueled teenage brain pissed off in general. I was exposed to Slipknot at the impressionable age of 15. My opinions on the album would, if I had been exposed, my opinions would be different. I must, of course, give the musicians their due. They're talented artists who know what they're doing. Taylor is a rare breed of singers who actually uses his voice as an instrument. But, he said, bias now addressed, I will go <laughs> full Watsonian. I effing hated this album. This was bad. How in the everlasting F did they mix this album? This is what pissed me off. The mixing is horrendous and the album is too bloody long. And he goes on to elaborate on that part. Um, I'm trying to think of what I thought about the mixing of the album. I didn't notice, I think, one way or the other, anything amazing or terrible. I, I like it, um, but I, it's, I mean, you know, they, as we said in the episode, they sought out Ross Robinson. They wanted exactly because of his work with. Um, corn so you know they wanted that sort of sound uh, and that's what that's you know that's what they got they you know in terms of the sh 
just sheer sonic shape of the album, it is probably closest to Korn than anything else that was around at the time, at least. Um, so, yeah, I think the production's... I mean, yeah, it could be cleaner. You listen to um, Volume 3, their third album, and that is, uh, you know, basically the same sound, but everything, you can tell that it's just recorded, you know, with a lot more money behind it. Sure. <laughs> everything is more solid and cleaner, um, but still really, really loud and intense. Um but I think the fact that you can, you know, when they could have literally made that album, especially by the time they got to their third album, you know, as we said, they had enormous right. success very fast. They could have made that album sound any way they wanted. And the fact that it just sounds like a better recorded version of the first album, I think shows that right from the start, they clearly knew what they were after. Now, right, you know, like with so many things with Slipknot, you may or may not like that personally, but I think it's clearly exactly what the band were after sure uh and then a couple more that i think echo some of the sentiments that we heard uh sean said another great show anthony and brian my knowledge of slipknot added up to one song so this was all new to me broadly agreed that the second half of the album drags a bit that's not to detract from the impact that those first six or so songs have love the chaotic sounds we'll save this one for the next time the neighbors kick off (laughs) excellent uh CJ said, really enjoyed this, and it was fascinating to revisit the album, as I've not played it for a while. I think I like it a lot more than I ever have done now. And so that kind of uh, sums up, I think, where some people were at with it, too, which is what we like to hear. I mean, that that people sort of went back and gave it another chance and maybe at least looked at it a little bit differently than they had before. Um, Absolutely. So that was kind of cool. But yeah, great feedback there. Again, if you're not on the Facebook page and you do have Facebook... There's a ton of great metal discussion going on there in between all you know these episodes, but certainly the episode ones are uh, great discussions and really interesting to hear people's perspectives, which is always the most fascinating part to me. Yeah, and you can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Um, speaking of uh, sort of going back and revisiting, I finally, and this isn't revisiting, but I finally listened to uh, the two early Queensryche albums that you suggested i should give a oh. give a go to the warning and rage for order uh-huh. uh yeah no uh what god <laughs> the rage Whoa, for- now my other kidney hurts <laughs> that's of- two that's two today you got me twice of the two rage for order was definitely better than oh rage for order is awesome definitely better and more to my taste than the warning the warning really wasn't my sort of thing at all uh so rage for order i, I have at least kept I didn't immediately purge from my machine, but I don't know how much I will go back and revisit it. Yeah, I You won't be just, taking hold of the flame anytime soon, yeah, is that what you're saying? Right, yeah, just not not my thing, I'm afraid. But I did give it a listen, at least. <laughs> I love that first one, especially because it sounds like such a, just a sci-fi album, you know what I mean? Like it, Like it could be the soundtrack for some questionable, you know, like some low-budget 70s or 80s sci-fi movie. Well, I read it was inspired by George Orwell's 1984. So, yeah, that does kind of make sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah, that was on, I think I looked it up on Wikipedia as I. Um, anyway, so uh, before we get off of this follow-up, a uh, couple of things. Uh, well, you and I both have new things that uh, people who listen to the show may be interested in. So first of all, uh, and especially this one, tell us about your new podcast. So for those of you who have ever checked out Secret Identity, which is the comic book podcast that Matt Herring and I have done for 12 years now, we just wrapped up 
that podcast with episode number 800, um, which got posted a couple Fridays ago. And so that officially brought an end to that podcast, but we had started probably two or three months ago our next sort of venture together. And it is a music podcast called Power Chords. So it's the Power Chords podcast. And we just posted, I believe, the eighth episode, which was about ACDC and sticks. And so the focus of that show is much more on 70s and 80s rock and metal. So if you've listened to like the Twisted Sister episodes of this show or the (laughs) Def Leppard episode of this show, and you were like, man, I would like a podcast where almost all the music was about you know, that period of time, then that's basically what that is. And it's not as much of a a deep dive as we do on this show. It's more of the same format that we did on Secret Identity, but applied to music, which is our other uh, love. And so it's essentially a couple of album discussions, some news from the industry, occasional interviews, and, you know, uh, lists of our favorite things and stuff like that. So it's very Secret Identity, but for music. Fantastic. And you can actually find that at uh, powercordspodcast.com. The podcast is on Google Play, it's on iTunes, uh, and we're on Spreaker as well. So, uh, so yeah, and that's been really fun. And that's, that's, so that's just Power Chords, P-O-W-E-R-C-H-O-R-D-S, podcast.com. Correct. Fantastic. Uh, I'll Actually, I'll drop a link to that. Remind me, I'll drop a link to that in the uh, show notes for the episode so people can click straight on it from their podcast player of choice. Thank you, sir. Uh, yes. And then I have, uh, as anybody who actually follows me on Facebook probably knows by now, and he's probably sick of hearing about by now, I have a new book coming out in just over a week's time, December 14th. Uh, my first mainstream novel uh, called The Exphoria Code, as in Euphoria, but with an X. Uh, it's another spy story, but it is, this is a, you know, a, a regular book, a regular novel, not a graphic novel. Um, and hopefully the, well, the first, Hopefully the first in a series. Uh, it could stand alone, but if it does well enough, then, you know, we will... I'm already thinking about a second book and we'll hopefully do a, a whole series of them. Uh, and that is a modern spy thriller. So where, you know, Coldest City Atomic Blonde was obviously a period piece. This is a contemporary modern spy thriller, a high-tech thing uh, about... Uh, the hero is called Bridget Sharp. She is a young uh, cyber analyst and hacker working for a specialist department within MI6. Uh, and she has basically my music tastes so people listening to this show <laughs> may just like her as a character uh, but she is uh traumatized uh has been in recovery and sort of uh therapy for the last three years after being traumatized by her first field mission that went horribly wrong uh, and got another fellow agent killed uh and now after this recovery she's forced back into the field when her best friend is murdered seemingly in connection with a series of strange internet posts and she's forced to go undercover uh to root out a mole who may have been her best friend's killer and it all everything goes to shit as you might imagine in a a story like that and soon she finds herself on the run alone and there's a nuclear terrorist plot unfolding around her and it's all very exciting um so yeah that comes out december 14th uh in the uk and commonwealth we don't yet have a u.s publisher lined up uh, we, you know, we're in talks, but we haven't sort of agreed or announced anything yet. As soon as we do, I'll mention that on the show as well. But if you are listening in the UK or a Commonwealth country, cause I know we do have some listeners in Australia, for example, then you can get, uh, the ebook now, or you can get a print copy on December 14th. That's awesome, man. Congratulations on that. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. I'm uh, yeah, we've had some good reaction to it and, uh, yeah, you know, hoping that, uh, that it goes down well with people. 
I also love when you can write characters that have similar taste to you, whether it be music or something else. And like that, that's something that I am big on as well is slipping in music references. I always feel like I'm trying to, to, uh, make sure that people don't forget the classics <laughs> in a lot of my writings of like, yeah, so the character will have a vinyl collection or the character will like this particular band or, or be wearing this t-shirt. So, um, so that's awesome. I, I can't wait to read it. I don't normally do it to be honest. Cause you know, it's, it's a bit sort of blatant, but it just felt right for this particular character. She's Anglo French. And so, uh, she grew up listening to French cold wave, which is basically French eighties goth. Uh, yeah. and so, yeah, it just kind of, you know, it made sense to her that when she came to England, she'd get into UK goth and then ease into metal through Fields of the Nephilim and bands like that. And yeah, you know, it's it's not a huge part of the book, but it definitely informs her character and her style, you know? Absolutely. I often build characters for my stories in one of the biggest elements is what is their musical taste. And, right. And so, you know, when I'm going, I'm usually creating like playlists for uh, particular characters, but I can't wait to read it, man. I'm super excited about that. Thank you, thank you. All right, so let's get on to the album in question then. Uh, Spell Eater by Huntress, as you say, 2012. Yes, April 7th, 2012. Uh, They did have an EP that came out in 2010 called Off With Her Head, but this was their first full debut album. Right. Uh, So tell us a bit about the band, because like I say, I mean, I have read up a bit about them, but like I say, I had literally never heard of them until you mentioned them last time. Well, see, I knew really nothing about this band when I started, you know, listening to them. But basically, they were uh, formed in 2009. They signed a deal with Napalm Records in 2011. Uh, they had released that EP in 2010, and then they released this album, Spell Eater, in 2012. And they have three full-length albums out now. Uh, we mentioned Static. Uh, the second one, I believe, is Starbound Beast. That came out in 2013. And then this one, Static, and uh, they, they've they had some ups and downs as a band. I mean, probably one of the things um, when I pulled some interviews that became very clear is that the lead singer, Jill Janis, is, uh, I mean, she's just amazingly interesting. She used to sing opera, which you can probably you can tell. Uh, figure yeah. <laughs> out if you are listening to uh, Huntress at all. But also she has uh, struggled with some mental health issues and has been pretty open in talking about that, she did a interview. Uh, I think she did like a guest post on Psychology Today, and I'll just read you a couple of the quotes that that she had said about that because her her mental health issues have affected the band at times. There was a time in I think it was 2015 where she had put a post on Facebook or something about how you know it's been a great run, but I'm going to continue to make music on my own. She basically made it sound like that the band was ending, and then. The guitar player, whose name is Blake Meal, I believe, had come out and said, "Nope, that you know, that's not happening." Jill's been kind of struggling with some stuff, so you know, we're going to continue to make music together, and that turned out to be the case. And she has kind of opened up about the stuff that she's been dealing with. She said, um, "I'll read you a couple quotes from this uh, interview she did with Team Rock in December 2015." She said. Uh, let's see. I relate to the math behind music. It soothes my brain and helps me to cope with my various mental health disorders. By the age of 10, I was performing in operas and musicals. My vocal range developed quickly. Uh, I was using four octaves by the age of 13. The discipline and focus was beyond my years. And I've, uh, she said, it's difficult to censor my thoughts before I speak. Harnessing self-control is a never-ending battle. I work at a pace much faster than most people when fueled by bipolar mania. Uh, I'm an animal when I write music, record, or tour. Uh, but it's helpful only if you can control the destruction that it brings. 
She said, a lot of people are without treatment because they're afraid to find help, fearing discrimination and ridicule. I wanted to find help but didn't know where to start. I ended up walking into a county hospital and saying I was suicidal. That was extreme, but I didn't know what else to do. I didn't give up because I desire to live. Help is out there more than ever before. Don't be ashamed to seek treatment. Your life isn't run by others' opinions. Live for your purpose. The vultures can wait. Um, And that's just one of many interviews that she has kind of given about that. Um, but she's talked, especially in recent years of her struggles with, uh, with mental illness. And I think a lot of that comes into the persona that she has created for this band, um, especially the way that she delivers vocals, especially the way that she, uh, sort of layers vocals and things like that. I think a lot of that has informed how she, how she performs music, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, she's, and she's absolutely right that obviously, you know, we don't talk enough as a society in general about mental health issues, you know, we're not open enough about them. Uh, and you know, it is good. I mean, it's terrible in a way that somebody suffering from mental health issues should feel like they have to go public as it were in order to highlight the problems that, you know, people who do suffer from them are going through, but you've got to start somewhere, I guess. And, you know, it is, uh, it's good that somebody like her is, brave enough to go public and help others realize that, you know, who might be suffering with similar issues, that they are not alone. And that, you know, even somebody who they might see as a role model can also suffer from these problems. Um, I mean, look at, you know, to get out of music for a while, look at somebody like Stephen Fry when he uh, went public about being bipolar. Yeah, that, that had a huge impact uh, over here. Anyway, I'm not so sure in the US, but over here, that had a huge impact on the awareness of bipolar disorder and mental health issues in general just because he is such because he's such a successful man that's the other thing you know he like a guy like Stephen Fry is so famous and so successful the very idea that he might actually be suffering from mental health issues was inconceivable to many people right so I think that really helped say like oh wow this really is you know something that anybody can suffer from and but that also conversely doesn't have to hold you back if right. you have a support network that can help get you through the bad times, you know? Well, and it also, I think, speaks to the importance of art and uh, creativity as, outlet, yes. as a, a coping me- mechanism, as an outlet, as a catharsis. I mean, she she has gone on to talk about how she has been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. She's had issues with um, hallucination. She's And she's been very open in talking about it in the hope that it will help inspire others to get treatment if they um, – you know, if they haven't yet and and if they've been afraid to kind of, to kind of look for that. But, um, but yeah, so that tends to dominate a lot of the discussion whenever she's being interviewed and things like that. But also there's tons of themes of the occult that run through Huntress's uh, music. And she was asked about, you know, being into the occult and the fact that she said that she's a practicing witch. And she said um, in an interview that she did in 2012, around the time that the album came out, she said, I've never really had to talk about it before I started getting into getting more attention with Huntress. Um, and obviously my lyrical content triggers that, but I was born in a very eccentric family on a farm in the Catskill mountains of New York. From the time I was a child, my parents always encouraged my pagan ways. So there's never been a moment where I haven't been encouraged to seek my own path. I don't speak of many details. I prefer to keep it in my music to keep the mystery and to keep it sacred. But indeed, 
I'm a witch and I have been since birth and I don't walk the path of darkness. I'm not a Satanist. I'm the type of witch that likes to trip my tits off in the woods on shrooms and dance with fairies. <laughs> so, and, well, and I, th- I think anybody who's seen any of the band's music videos would probably guess that as well, because she spends most of them half naked walking through the woods, seemingly having some kind of hallucinatory episode. So... <laughs> And when you listen to, uh, when you hear like the rest of the band members talk about like lyrical themes and stuff like that, it seems like for the most part, Jill does all the the lyric writing and they may bring some themes to her. Like there's one song in particular on this album that uh, Blake kind of had the background for, but uh, it, the funny thing is like a lot of times they don't even know what she's talking about. Right. Like they, they'll, they, they can't even give an expert, like when someone says, oh, so what did, what did you guys do with this song? Or what, what was the, um, sort of idea behind this song? And they're kind of like, I don't like, I don't know, like somebody, <laughs> somebody that eats spells, <laughs> you know, like, like, whereas Jill, like, uh, you know, she'll have a whole example. mythology worked she out for does. the entire it, song. Yeah, yeah. When we talk about that song, I could talk about what she said about that particular song. Cause she did, uh, kind of go into that particular song, but yeah. Uh, and just just to go back to the opera training, she said, you know, for me, the opera training is simply the foundation for my vocal approach. I'm not the type of singer who's going to want to put operatic inflections in there. I spent years attempting to strip that away, knowing I wanted to get heavier. I was born with four octave, you know, um, coloratura soprano range. Uh, and she, But she talks about what it takes to keep her voice in shape. And she says... Uh, that that's where the training comes in. Vocal rest immediately after shows. I don't talk after shows. I don't speak in the morning until I do my speech warm up. I don't drink. I don't party anymore. So the voice rules me, and it has to be that way to pull off the type of antics that I do. So uh, yeah, lots of lots of uh, preparation and recovery go into her vocal deliveries. And I haven't seen much of them live. I haven't seen them live as a band, but they are definitely on my list to go check out live. So I don't know how well her performance sort of translates live. I would imagine that that is very difficult to pull off live, but I haven't, if anybody out there has seen them, I would love to hear how they play live. Yeah. I mean, it's the sort of thing I agree. It probably is difficult, but at the same time, if she is a trained operatic singer, you know, that's what opera singers do is perform live night after night. So as long as she is looking after her voice, I don't see why she shouldn't be able to, you know, to replicate that stuff live. Uh, and now, obviously, it's always going to sound a little better in studio because you can do multi-tracking and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, you know, I would hope. I'd be very disappointed if she can't pull this stuff off live because that's kind of like, well, then why why do it, you know? If you can't replicate it live, at least to a good level. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but to a decent level, then kind of why bother, you know? And why make such a big deal of it? Because it is... In almost everything you read about the band, somebody somewhere is going to mention her four octave range, you know, and she is clearly the focal point of the band as well. She's the front woman. Right. She's the one, you know, in at the front in all the photos. It, she's the star of the videos. And, you know, nothing wrong with that. But as a result, the focus is entirely on her and her voice. So It's like a King Diamond thing. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And if King Diamond couldn't hack it live, you'd be very disappointed. Correct. Right. It is, it is what the band is built around. And of the original members, there are three remaining. So the current members, Jill Janison, lead vocals. Uh, Blake Meal is the lead guitarist. Eli Santana is rhythm guitars. Tyler Meal is on drums. And Eric Harris on bass. But for this particular album, uh, the bass player was 
or, or I'm sorry, Ian Alden was the rhythm guitar player and Carl Weir's Bicky was the drummer. And so the drummer on this first debut album is no longer with the band and the rhythm guitarist is no longer with the band. But Jill and Blake and Eric are all um, continuing to be with Huntress. So, yeah, the weird thing there is that uh, Ian Alden was the rhythm guitarist at first and then at some point became the bassist when the other bassist left. And yep. the, the whole, it would appear that aside from Jill Janis and Blake Meal, it would appear that the rest of the band is basically in a Spinal Tap style, you know, revolving chairs. Uh, pretty Which much- again, reminds me a bit of Sister Sin because it was it was her and right. I think the lead guitar player that would, and I might be wrong about that, I have to go back and look, but it was like her and one other band member that had been sort of the creative force behind the band since the beginning and other people had sort of come and went. Right, the core of the band and then everyone else kind of revolves around them. Yeah, that's definitely the impression I got looking at this band. However, I will say uh, I have only listened to this album and not that I Uh couldn't have gone and and listened to the other albums, but I didn't want to because I wanted to listen to and discuss this album without sort of tainting it, you know, with, because it, there were a band, like I said, never heard of. So I wanted to go in kind of, uh, virginal, if you like, and not be affected by how they might develop in later years or what their early EP was like, that sort of thing. So this is at the, at time of recording, literally the only thing of theirs that I have heard. And I will tell you that I have, I did the same. I, I listened to this first album many, many times before, jumping into their other albums and my general impression without having spent nearly as much time with the other two albums is that this album is very raw and they sand off and sort of polish a lot of stuff between the next two albums so that the third album sounds um i don't want to say more traditional but i think that it's uh it's more refined than this one for sure there's definitely an evolution there with their sound and I don't know that I really. I think I like this better. Right, like, I'm like not the sure if that's actually for the better. Exactly, yeah. which is the same thing, kind of with Sister Sin. Whereas their newest album, like there were some amazing songs on it, but it also wasn't as different. Felt like it as lacked their a bit of edge. original. Yes, exactly. And so I'm very interested to see sort of what happens next for them. But this first album, what drew me to it. And what kind of made it stick with me was the energy of it. And um, especially when she really unleashes, I was like, holy shit. Okay. All right. So um, I'll be yeah. really so, interested to hear how, yeah, some of those later albums then, because uh, I'll, I'll say at the start, I, this album is okay, but there yep. are aspects of it that I disliked and that I was disappointed by. So, but, but I, as I was listening, I was thinking like, but is that just because it's a debut? You know, it's sure. like if this if you told me that this was their third album, then I would have been like, OK, this band is is not, you know, they're not quite doing it for me. But knowing that it's their debut makes right. me more inclined to listen to later stuff and think, well, maybe they might, you know, evolve into something that is more more fully for me, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, like, for example, there are, I would say that they get better as they go along about maybe not lingering too long. Right, you know, there and, th- are some, and that is so they, one of my criticisms of this album, yep. yeah, yeah. So so that kind of stuff is some of the sort of the edges that they sand off along the way, which is, again, not necessarily a bad thing. Although, uh, well, uh, when we talk about different tracks, there are a couple times where I appreciated that they stuck around because what you got after the part you thought the song was going to end uh, 
was pretty good. Right. So yeah, but that's the type of stuff I think when I say that they sort of refined it, I think it's that type of stuff. Like it doesn't feel like, um, you know, they're any less sort of dynamic, but it's been refined a bit as it goes along. So this, this is definitely to me sounds like their debut album. Right. Right. Well, and one of the, before we get onto the individual tracks, one of the other things about the album in general that I, I, I was just sort of thinking, you know, like, reflecting thinking how amazing is it that something this fast and detuned with blast beats um you know sort of black metal touches here and there is kind of mainstream like you listen to this and and i've seen this actually because i did see reaction to some of their youtube uh, videos on youtube and stuff and comments and i've seen people you know the, like the edge lords and the hardcore kids going like oh this is you know really like mainstream boring sure. metal and i'm like I understand where you're coming from because it, it, it does sound kind of mainstream and in some places it may be a little unadventurous. But on the other hand, isn't it fucking amazing that we are at a position where you can say an album like this sounds mainstream and a bit boring in places, whereas 20 years ago, this would have been the fucking devil's work. Can you imagine? Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, unbe- absolutely. <laughs> And uh, 100%, dude. So, yes, it is amazing. I think we take a lot for granted in terms of how far metal has come. Absolutely. And just how how mainstream it was. Like, you know, especially post-80s, right? Because in the 80s, metal was pop. And so everybody listened to metal and everybody, like, that's why those 80s bands were so huge because that's what you heard on the top 40. You literally heard hair metal and you know stuff like that and so but especially nowadays like i think we take for granted sometimes like what how good we have it in that we can look at something like this and be like meh yeah they're i guess they're pretty heavy right you know, yeah. like, you know it, like, and it's like you, hang on there are fucking blast beats in here and yeah like norwegian fucking uh melody chords going on in the background yes and just what the hell but i think this is why it annoys me when people say like that well you get some people in the scene saying that metal hasn't progressed much in the last 10 to 20 years and i'm like you know the absolute bullshit um but also when you get people who aren't into metal and who are dismissive of metal saying oh well you know metal's all just kind of you know it's all the same and uh, it has it's not a progressive style of music like you know indie rock or and i'm like absolute bollocks it constantly evolves that's one of the things i love about metal is that it is always evolving and it just absorbs genres and then spits them back out again in new configurations with well, and some I would, extra distortion. Uh, exactly, and which I think is a perfect encapsulation of this band. There are a lot of different influences that are at play in this album. And so it, it, in a lot of ways, and you could make the argument of whether that hangs together well in some cases and maybe not so well in other places, but this is definitely like a buffet of different styles, I think, that goes into what you get as a total album here with Huntress. A smorgasbord. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, w- one thing I didn't mention about band history, uh, their name is based off of Artemis, goddess of the hunt, in case anybody didn't um, you know, sort of pick that up, but that fits in line, I think, with the theme of the band. Uh, and there is a Motorhead connection here. Not on there this is. particular album, but their second album, Starbound Beast, includes a track called I Want to Fuck You to Death, which was co-written for Jill Janis by legendary Motorhead frontman Lemmy Kilmister. 
which is kind of, you know, Lemmy doesn't write lyrics for just anyone or didn't. No. Sorry, I should say. Um, he always lives on in my mind. Uh, so, yeah, that's, you know, I mean, again, much like we said when we did the Sister Sin episode, I can well imagine that Lemmy probably saw this band probably playing in his hometown, because don't forget he lived in L.A. for a long time, yep. uh, probably playing somewhere in L.A. and was like, yeah, you know, sexy front woman who can growl her tits off, as it were. Uh, yep. I can imagine he'd be into that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, That's, so I thought that was pretty cool. Sounds like Lemmy's thing. All right, so let's get into the uh, album itself. So uh, 11 songs, 47 minutes, you know, kind of average. There are a couple yeah. of songs on here that I think maybe could have been a bit shorter, but it's not a bad length, you know, not too long. No, 542 might be the high watermark. Let me just check the last song because... No, it is. Yeah, 542, I think, is the longest track on this album, and that is Eight of Swords. Right. So everything else is roughly anywhere between three and a half and four and a half minutes, so pretty average song times. Um, yeah. But, yeah, in 46 minutes overall, not not uh, not a not like the album I forwarded to you yesterday. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. One track of 80 the minutes. The Bellwitch yeah. album, which has an 86-minute one-track album. Yeah. So, yeah, these guys are, I think, in the safe zone as far as, you know, what we traditionally think of. Yeah. All right. So let's start then. So the first track, track one, is the title track, Spell Eater. Which I think has a great opening that kind of sets the tone for what you can expect from these guys. It kind of has a little bit of everything about, you know, you get that that sort of um, that picking the one note kind of thing as it goes, as it sort of opens. And then you get about 40 seconds and it sort of settles into the main groove of the song. Um, the thing that jumped out to me immediately is Jill's sort of whispering in the background as she's you know, delivering the the regular verses. And that's a theme that is kind of played out over and over again through this album, which I thought added a nice element to that. It's certainly, it's unusual, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, not that it's never been done before, but she does seem to do it more, you know, more extensively than, uh, than many other vocalists. Yeah. And yeah, this track, absolutely. I mean, it's another, it, it's a great opening track in the sense that if you like this, 
you're probably going to like the rest of the album and vice versa. Um, the yeah, the blast beats and the double picking actually kind of fooled me. The very first time that I put it on, I thought like, oh wow, Brian's given us a black metal album to listen to, uh, and and of course then it's you know it's not, and as you said, that's just one influence clearly on the right. whole album uh, because then it becomes what I would like, to, what I sort of term goblin thrash. <laughs> okay, I kind of is. Am I supposed to not like that? Because I like I, that. I'm not that, saying that's necessarily. I'm doubling down on Goblin Thrash, and I also want a, a list thing. of Goblin Thrash albums that I can go and check out after this. Like I'm, I'm down for Goblin Thrash. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but yeah, it's kind of it, it's uh, it settles into fairly basic thrash metal, but with her vocals, which you know you kind of kind of either love or hate. It reminded me. The style, her, her sort of, I mean, she has many, many styles that she adopts on this album, but the, her main sort of growling style is quite a sort of high-pitched, goblin-y kind of growl. And it reminded me yeah. of the Exodus album. Do you remember, that was my issue with the Exodus album, was like, I loved the album as a whole, but I had a real problem with the vocal uh, Sousa's style. vocals, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's my issue here is, and like I say, she has many other styles, all of which I prefer to this. <laughs> but unfortunately, the style that she uses the most throughout the album is that kind of, yeah, like I say, I, I, I mean, calling it goblin style is, you know, that means nothing. But I think you know what I mean, and I think listeners do as well. I absolutely know what you mean, and I... I maybe like it for that reason like i, I liked the excess <laughs> album too what, what i love is that it's for the most part the exact opposite of of cookie monster right and i kind of love that in that it would be so easy for for her to fall into that because that's what's familiar and so i kind of like the fact that her her version of that is just so it is at a range that you're probably not going to hear many people even be able to pull off and so I, it, it's like, uh, yeah. It, so the Goblin Thrash, uh, I, I like that. It, it has sort of this sort of. Um, uh, it also has this sort of manic edge to it. You know what I mean? Where it's like it, it, it's very much like almost losing control. I mean, you could feel the strain of that, even though for her, she's probably not <laughs> straining in the same way that. But it sounds that like most she people is. Would. Yeah. It totally sounds like she is screaming uh, with every fiber of her being. And I love that. I love the energy. That's the, where the rawness of this album comes in for me. And then, but then she'll switch like around 320 into this song. You have that sort of 70s horror music, oh, you know, kind of chorusy background that she's sort of singing. And so you get those melodies mixed in, and then you get these just, you know, gut wrenching screams that she does. I, I really love that. Um, and for me on this track, that's what, that's what really sort of drives it home. And then she, she has said about this song, which there's a, I've, as much as I've listened to this album, I, I like to find stories probably even where there isn't a story. And to me, there's several songs on this album that have this sort of theme sort of woven through them of someone who is, um, exploring magics that they are in over their head with. And so what she's talking, what she says here, she said, with spell eater in the lyrical content, I say, I am the spell eater. A lot of it is about addiction, addiction to spells, obviously, but addiction is universal. So to, um, to maintain my addiction, something I must do is take the soul from another person to maintain that. And she's talking about the video, uh, that they filmed for this. 
And she says, in the video, you see I'm with, withdrawing and failing, and then I meet this alchemist on top of a cliff, and he gives me yet another potion, which ties into the feeding of this addiction of mine to spells and magic. And so that's, uh, I, I think that comes across pretty well without that explanation. I, I think it, well, it does, uh, and especially in the video, uh, you know, it's made very clear if you watch the music video, it's quite a literal <laughs> video in some ways. Um, the one thing that, uh, that I saw extra that I got from it, if you like, was when I was before I looked at the video or anything like that, uh, and was just reading the lyrics along with the song. I obviously there's the surface reading of, yes, you know, it's somebody who, as you say, is kind of becomes addicted to magic as it were. But honestly, I wondered, and clearly this is not the case, but this is the beauty of, you know, poetry and uh, music lyrics. I wondered if it actually might also be about somebody who feels like they are a channel for writing music. You know, oh, as if, no, as if I, they're I don't like think you're far off at all. Receiving, I, I do feel like that is a theme. Because you hear that from a lot of musicians and songwriters. They sometimes feel as if they're kind of, you know, uh, not in a crazy kind of way, uh, but, you know, as if they're being sort of sent ideas for songs and they're, they're just... For sure. The songs are flowing through them and they're just a conduit, you know? And that's... I actually wondered if the song was about that. I mean, who knows? Maybe on a subconscious level, there is a little of that as well. But uh, yeah, no, I, I I agree that I think that um, there's also this theme of like opening yourself up as a channel to something and having that thing consume you, right? And so I do feel like that that is absolutely um, a theme with this for sure. My my one major criticism of this track is that this is one of the ones that I think goes on a bit too long. Uh, I actually kind of wish that this ended at, uh, what is it, three minutes and five after the yeah. final chorus, instead of going into the halftime ah, play out, uh, because I think it just would have had more impact, especially as an opening track. Uh, if it had been shorter like that and had really ended on a sort of, on, you know, on a big hit. Uh, whereas the the singy song, ah, ah, bit kind of feels like, almost like Tacked she's, on. well, almost like she's going, no, look, see, I can sing properly as well. You haven't heard it yet in this track, but I can. Um, and maybe that's not the case, but it kind of just, yeah, feels unnecessary and not very interesting. You know, and I wish that they'd just got rid of that 40 seconds or whatever and cut the track after the chorus instead. And then it would have really been, you know, a smack to the face. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I I do feel like this is one of the songs where it wouldn't have hurt the song to lose that. There are a couple where I think it pays off, but I, I agree with you. I don't I don't think it I think the song could have been stronger and tighter had they done that. Right, yeah. And I would agree with you. I think there are, there are. you're right, there are a couple here that I think do pull it off as well. But yeah, this is one of the ones where I, I don't think it did, really. Um, so moving on, track two is Senicide.
I like the intro to this one more than the title track, actually, because I think the intro to this feels more purposeful. Uh, the the sort of ringing twin guitar melody in the riff, I think, gives it uh-huh. a really nice atmosphere. It feels like you're in for something a bit epic. Yeah, and uh, to me, it has. Th- there's a lot of this album to me that feels old school Slayer, like before oh. they were just about speed, like. Like show no mercy, like early stuff, you know, mandatory suicide, like that kind of. I, I do, I definitely feel like there's a tone and a delivery with uh, the guitars that makes me feel like early Slayer and some of this. And this was one of the songs. There's like three or four where I was like, this feels Slayery to me. This was one of them in the opening in particular. I hadn't made the Slayer comparison but now that you say it, yeah, actually, I can, I can see that. Yeah, I need to say there are a lot of influences on this album. Um, and yeah, I can see now that you've said it, that Slayer is probably one of them. Um, I love how we go into the chorus on this one yes. with the stop star riff. Um, but the chorus itself, I wish it was a bit more interesting. It's, I like her vocal melody, but the guitars just feel kind of functional. And if I have yes. a criticism of, you know, of this album in terms of musically, it is that there are quite a lot of times where the guitars just kind of feel functional because she's busy doing her thing and that's a bit of a disappointment i kind of wish that the guitars were a bit more interesting even while jill is wailing up and down the scales because i just think that would be more exciting i think i don't think i necessarily disagree with you on that i feel like a lot i feel like where their strongest work is in most of the album is in the main riff and sometimes the chorus riffs don't do enough. I agree. And I think it's a lot of times because they're getting out of the way of her vocals just so that she can, you know, have sort of the spotlight there. But I do feel like they could do a better job of varying that stuff up because that's where I feel like they become the most sort of just functional is around right. like chorus. Which is weird. As isn't opposed it? to the main riff, which yeah, it is weird because like their their main rhythm riff uh often is very good. Um, but then it sort of loses something when they go into the chorus because they just sort of let her jump ahead. But there are other times where they play off of each other very well. But yeah, I, I think that's a place. And as I'm trying to think of albums two and three, I wonder if they improve upon that. I'm going to listen for that as I go to the next ones. But yeah, that's I, I think that's certainly a valid uh, criticism of that. Now, this is a song where if you haven't picked up on it yet, Senicide is about the killing yeah, of old people. The lyrics and don't so, seem to uh, have much to do with that, really. To me, anyway. No, I think this is a case of a concept being brought to her and her trying to fit it within the scope of this album. Because Blake, who is the guitar player, said, I worked as a landscaper for a long time, and I work with old people all the time. I effing hate <laughs> old people after a while. He said, I was taking, he said, I was taking a lot of shit from old people at my job, and I was like... We're going to write a song about killing fucking old people, and we're going to call it Senicide. He said it was just a thrash-out jam about slaying old people. And so uh, he probably came to her and was like, I've got this hey, idea. guess what? <laughs> this is the song I wrote. I got this idea. And she was like, I'm going to have to do a little bit of work on that. Because clearly, you know, the four horsemen arrive and all that. So, like the the sort of themes that she's woven into this lyrically that fit more within the overall tapestry of this album um, clearly did not come from his landscaping story. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think, I think he was probably like, 
I wrote this kick-ass thrash song about killing old people. And she was like, okay, why don't you put that over there? And yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I can I'll take a look that. at it yeah. when I start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I try to work that into uh, the, the rest of this album. So, uh, yeah. So, I just thought that was funny because, like, when I was listening, I'm like, Senicide, Sen- Wait a second. Yep. No, it's exactly what you thought it was about. I do. I really like the breakdown. (laughs) Yeah. I really like the breakdown on this track as well. This is actually one of my favorite tracks on the album. Uh, Despite what I said about the chorus, it is still, it is effective. And like I say, her vocal melody on the chorus, I think is great. Uh, And yeah, the breakdown is really good as well. Um, And it ends well. The whole thing is, like I say, it's actually one of my favorite tracks. Yeah, I would say it's one of my favorites, but I do, there are elements of the song that I absolutely love. Um, and I love, uh, like, her vocals are great, because I think especially, like, when she's saying, die, the fifth season arrives, she's just sort of kind of yelling that out. And then the all life yeah. drains from your eyes is much more melodic. Like, I, I like within that how she's sort of yeah. playing one off of, of the other, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, that's what I say, her vocal melody on the chorus. That's why I'm a little disappointed about the guitars, because her melody is great, and but the guitars are just kind of like going, well, the, you know, behind it. And sometimes the, the, the like we talked about, those main rhythm riffs kind of promise something that you just were thinking was going to pay off a little bit more with the chorus. Right, right, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's move on. Track three, Sleep and Death. Yeah, this one is kind of a little proggy to open up, uh, and I like like the yeah. you know it, it, when it hits its groove at like forty seconds in, you have that sort of demonic voice, and then um, uh, like just the way the the riff and her vocals kind of play con- contrast one another. I really really kind of like, and I think this song continues the theme of the first song. You know, she's talking about dark forces draw strength at night, depleted in the light, secret sight. Um, almost like this whole, to me, I, I get, uh, you know, images of like astral travel and dream travel and stuff like that. And just kind of, again, like opening yourself up to magic and the worlds that it can show you and that kind of stuff. And and this person like kind of falling deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole of this. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, musically, this actually, talking again about sort of, you know, diverse influences, this actually reminds me of Later Death. Oh. It has lots of, like, you know, sort of strange rhythms, weird atonal chords and guitar lines. Yeah. You know, there was, it took me a couple of listens to realize what I was sort of hearing in it. And then it clicked and I was like, oh, yeah. If musically, at any rate, if, you know, if this had appeared on a later death album, I wouldn't have been entirely surprised. Um, which is, you know, from me, a great compliment because obviously, as we did the episode, you know, I love later proggy, as you say, proggy death, you know, sort of prog death metal. Um, I'm not keen on the pre chorus melody. There's something about that that I just really dislike. The chorus is better. Yeah. Um, but I really like the guitar harmony that comes immediately after the chorus when you get the uh, the twin guitars playing the harmony, I think is really, just really good and really effective. Uh, and I also really like the ending where it changes and adopts a new melody. The lyrics to that ending are not the best. Yeah. <laughs> They're pretty, pretty rudimentary. Uh, but the, musically uh, and sort of, you know, melody-wise, I, th- I really like that part where it switches. And yes, this is one of the ones where the, the, the coda, if you like, of the song, I think really does pay off. Yeah, and I think lyrically where some of this stuff falls short is it, it, it seems like sometimes, like I'm I'm totally down for the D&D vibe that I'm getting off of, uh, you know, Jill's lyrics overall. I, I That's one of the things that sort of attracts me to this band. Um, but I feel like sometimes it's more of a statement of concept as opposed to actually telling any sort of story. You know, like, right. like when she'll say science of the super sensible, like that sounds cool the first time you hear it, but it's like, What's behind it doesn't that. mean anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, there are points where I feel like we could go a little bit deeper into some of these concepts. And they do. Um, but there are times where when they don't, that's where it kind of stands out to me. Yeah, I would agree. I, I also agree. like that we get um, a little bit of whammy bar in the uh, in the solo. A couple of the solos here yes. get a little bit weird. And I, I kind of like that. Because overall, like I wouldn't say this is a great album for solos. And I don't think they overdo solos at all in this album. Um but that none of them are like amazingly stand out with there's a couple that I thought were really good, but I, this was the first time I noticed the whammy bar. Yeah, no, I, I actually did notice that as well. Yes. And the, so, I mean, people know I'm not really a solos guy and none of the solos on this album, as you say, kind of really stood out as amazing for me. But on the other hand, also none of them are terrible either. You know, they're, they're all perfectly again, functional. Um, but I did notice, yes, some quite egregious use of, low growling whammy bar in uh, several of the solos yeah. <laughs> that seems to be a, f- a favorite trick <laughs> uh so track four is snow witch
which is one of my favorite songs on the album. Ah, right. Okay. I whenever I can't. I can't help whenever I hear the title, but think of the old fighting fantasy game book, Caverns of the Snow Witch, oh, which yes. I'm sure has no connection to this whatsoever. But I can't help putting that image in my mind. I don't know, man. <laughs> you know? Like it wouldn't it wouldn't blow me away if it did. Like I love that this one kind of has a doomy but then frantic feel to the it, opening. The of intro it. is really epic and doomy, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. And I feel like uh, again, shades of like a Marth, like in terms of the. Um, Yom's Viking story that 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 was more of a concept album, but this is where I feel like there is a concept that's weaving through some of these songs. Um, I love just the main rhythm of this song, and you know the the story that she's telling about you know it's kind of this person stumbling upon the Snow Witch and you know in their dilapidated state, and she's saying spells shroud the darkness of your soul, dark Arctic night together. Her spells heal your wounds, flesh to flesh under the moon. Like it's just that D and D story, you know. I, totally, I, yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, this song I feel like has a great solo, um, and I like how they change up sort of the main rhythm in when the solo is playing, so that like the second phrase is just like uh, quickly descending, which is different than what you get in the rest of the song, kind of as they're yeah. playing the solo over. I, I like that. Um, I love the reset at two minutes where you reset to the next verse. Um, and it's just got this great sort of plotting rhythm to it. Uh, I just, I, I just love that main. This is another song where like, I feel like their main rhythms under the verses are really good overall. And this is another one where I, I like it. And and the tempo is different here than kind of what we've seen with the first few songs. Yeah, uh, I also like that you can finally hear the bass in the guitar melody at the end of each verse line when you get that little guitar flourish. You can actually hear the because ba- the rest of this album, the bass is kind of, you know, it's a bit buried. I would agree is, with you. Which is a shame because, you know, clearly this is a talented bassist. But uh, yeah, you know, we don't actually get to hear them all that much. I really appreciate that this one is trying something different with structure as well you're right the tempo is different to what we've had before which is good uh but also the structure of it there's no traditional chorus yep uh the solo guitar melodies are you know unusual and it's all it feels like yeah this is i mean we called the last track proggy but actually in its sort of true sense of prog music this is closer to it because it is an unusual structure that yeah doesn't follow your regular verse chorus verse chorus middle eight repeat chorus structure you know um my and i like the lyrics as well i really like the lyrics of this one apart from (laughs) sad songs of wales which is worthy of halloween Um, oh it's it's awesome (laughs) doesn't that make you love it more like i don't like Uh, this is the true difference between you and i is that like when you cringe at like the cheesiest moments of the stuff that we listen to like those are the parts that I love. You're pumping the, your fist in the air. That's exactly yeah. right. Yes. But I'm like, well, they, this just put this song just got another five points. <laughs> but if they weren't English, then yes, it would. That's the thing. If they weren't in native English speakers, I would absolutely love that. But they are. You know, English is her native language. And so it's kind of it is a little cheesy. Um and the other thing is that I wish this is another one where I think unfortunately the coda doesn't pay off. Uh, it end the main song ends with like a minute and a half to go, but all they do with it is a quick solo and then repeat 
the sad songs of Wales and, and she goes, ah, again. And, and it just kind of, it just kind of falls away, uh, which I think is a real shame because it's such a good, the rest of it is such a good song that they could have really used that time to build up to a big climax that would have fitted that kind of epic man versus nature with supernatural sirens and all that shit yep. that, you know, the rest of the song is about. Hell, you don't want to talk about cheesy, fuck, chuck a seabell clanging in the background in there. Do you know what I mean? Something yep. really go for it, but instead but they kind of, it just falls away. What I, it, I would love to talk to Jill Janice about like her song writing because she, it feels to me very visual. And so when yes. you like when you take the visuals away and you're just listening to the music, I think that's where some of these um where the song lingers on a bit too much may feel a little hollow, but if it was paired with a visual, it would make a lot more sense. And that's where I I almost feel like she's writing the soundtracks to the things that to the stories that she's telling and but when you don't have that visual, that's where some of this stuff drops out because you can see when you watch any of their videos that clearly there is this very theatrical and, you know, um, sort of like uh, 70s horror movie field. It Like it just that's such a big part of this that it's hard to deliver some of that stuff without the theatrical part, you know, and that's oh. where I feel like some of this stuff doesn't maybe feels a little bit hollow. I agree. I mean, yeah, I'll be amazed if she doesn't have a wall lined with trauma video DVDs, you know. Completely. Um, or like the whole story of this this song, like storyboarded out or, you know, like in her head, she could tell <laughs> right. you she could tell you the movie that it, that is playing along with. Oh, yeah. And then this part, they go here and then this is what happens here. And it, it does remind me a lot of uh, the Amon Amarth Yams Viking stuff where but but with theirs, because they were however many a dozen studio albums <laughs> like there they had refined their sound by that point where right. they had already sanded those edges off, but, well, but and refined their storytelling. That's yes. the thing, you know, she clearly has these great concepts and some of her lyrics are, you know, really go well and evoke sure. those images in a fantastic way. But the actual, as you said, you know, some of them are more about a concept than a story. And this music is so, or these songs as a whole are so clearly aiming for that storytelling vibe. Yes. As you say, the whole sort of D and D magic spells, uh, you know, let, let's tell you a fantastic story. And I mean, fantastic in every sense of the word. Uh, and it's not some of the time it doesn't quite reach it. But like I say, that's why I said earlier, because this is a debut album, I'm prepared to give it a little Correct. bit more leeway on that score and hope that, you know, they improve as time goes on. So it, let's move on to, Oh, go on. No, I was just going to say, and in that way, it's pretty ambitious for a debut album because again, oh, for a totally, lot of yeah. debut albums, what you're getting is the songs that they've polished while they're playing bar gigs for the past 10 years. And <laughs> That's true. you know what I mean? And so like all the songs are basically, basically of a similar length and they're very polished because they've played them forever and that kind of stuff. But you don't get the sense with the, like, they're reaching in a lot of different places on this album, which is pretty ambitious for a, a debut album. It works in some cases, not as well in others, but that's one of the things that I love about it is that it really is, they're not approaching it like it's a debut album, you know? No, no, which is commendable, absolutely commendable. Yeah. Uh, so I was going to say, let's move on, and that's this is relevant, let's move on to track five, which is Eight of Swords. <laughs>
Which is fucking awesome. And it's a fucking great track. I agree with you. I, what start to one of my favorites on the album. But this is that aside. This is a perfect example of there's something here that lyrically that could be a great story, but instead it's not. It's like a scene. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's like she's she's describing a scene rather than a series of events. And you know maybe that's what she's going for. But I think with this kind of music, it is more effective when you do have more of a storytelling vibe to it. And that's the one thing that I feel is missing from this track, because I agree, I think this is a great track. It's a contender for best on the album, I agree. no question. Um, but the only thing that lets it down is it feels like if the lyrics were just given another pass, you know, then it would be even better. I wholeheartedly agree with you about this song, because it feels like what this song conceptually is saying is like that this is the turning point of when the the person is losing control of the magic that they're sort of tapping into that's what it feels like to me is like this is the pivot of um now things are starting to get out of control that's how the that's how the energy feels in this song that's how it feels like the the message is telling you is that this thing is not what you thought it was um, this is not, you don't have control over this. Like, that's what I take away. But you're right. It feels more like painting in broad strokes as opposed to really delivering the the clarity of that story that she's trying to tell. Um, having said that, every part about the song musically is freaking awesome. The main riff is awesome. This is a song where they could have ended this song at four minutes, and you could make the argument that maybe they should have, but I feel like you would have been robbed of the furious finish of this song. Um, <laughs> it like the What it builds to at the end is just balls out, and her voice, especially, oh, it starts out doomy, and then at 30 seconds, when she unleashes that scream as the riff kicks in, like, holy shit, like, this is, they sort of hit you with both barrels of what this band is capable of, I think, right. on this song. And it's like, damn. And this is a good example. Like, it's a debut album, but on a couple of these songs, boy, did they catch lightning in a bottle. And I feel like this is one of those songs. Yeah, yeah, it's a really great intro. Um, I mean, the the verse, riff, and melody aren't the best on the album, but they're they're perfectly fine. But the chorus, this is the only chorus from the album that uh, that I could remember after my first listen. It was the only chorus that after I'd listened to this album precisely once, I could have sung back to you. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that speaks well of it. Um, I also, I really like the vocal double track that she does on uh when she sings let the witches in oh so at, the end, at the end of the good. chorus i actually wish she did more of that that, that double track works really really well and i wish she did that more often um and the breakdown in the middle really feels to me and i'll be interested if anybody out there has seen this band live i'd be really interested to know if this is a popular because i know it was a single so i'd be really interested to know if this was a popular live song because the breakdown in the middle feels like it was made for a live gig sing-along. Um, now, I was wrong about that, if you remember, when we talked about King's X. Yep. So <laughs> maybe I'm wrong about it here as well. But as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, yeah, I can just imagine a crowd really singing along to this this part. Um, and then the guitar solo, again, isn't, you know, it, it's, it's okay. Again, functional. It's not amazing. But the last part 
of the guitar solo with the key change. Hurrah! Fucking yep. choir of angels sing. We get a key change at last. Um, and it, you know, it does exactly what a key change should do. It elevates the song uh, in onto another level. And then, as you say, we get that furious ending, which is, yeah, you know, overall, this is musically, I think, one of if not possibly the strongest tracks on the album. It, it, it certainly could be the strongest track in the album, especially when she's screaming the the chorus lyric after she sings it. Like, so good. Like, just the energy yeah. of that crescendo is just freaking awesome, man. This, this, is a, this is a great tune. And smack dab in the middle of the album. And I, in that way, I almost feel like tracks one through four, you got glimpses of her voice, but she doesn't really unleash it until the beginning of track five here. The beginning of track five here where she just completely lets go with that scream at the top of her lungs is like everything that we've been building to to this point. And I just thought that that was a great point in the album, like because I think the other four songs are strong as well. But this one is like the exclamation point on the first five songs of the album. Yeah, well, and it's that's good to me. That's good album structure. Agreed. Is you put strong song at the beginning strong you know you take your three strongest tracks basically you put one at the beginning one at the end and one in the middle uh you know because then you're not leaving people too long between the real peaks of the album uh, and as you say that's not to say that the tracks in between are bad but they're not as strong as i actually think it's you know i mean as i said i think it's track two is the stronger track yeah but that's close enough to the start you know and then yeah track five is absolutely another high point uh and then there's another one at the end that we'll get to later but for now let's move on to track six aradia Which felt very slayery in its open opening to me too, like old school Slayer, like that galloping sort of opening riff. I felt reminded me of Shades of Early Slayer. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I this is one where I wish I liked the verse, riff, and vocals more than I do. Uh, you know, there there's just something about them that doesn't really do it for me. Uh, what actually I do like here a lot is the pre-chorus, yes. which is really interesting with that guitar melody and a very unusual vocal melody. And then the chorus itself, which has a good rhythm, uh, good vocals, you know, that, that really works for me. Yeah, summon the banshees tonight, writhing until we ignite. Like, there, there's some good, there's, uh, there's some good lyrics here. And Aradia is one of the principal figures in the uh, book Gospel of the Witches, which was by Charles Godfrey Leland, which is 
which he believed to be a genuine religious text used by a group of pagan pagan witches in Tuscany. So it's sort of uh, telling the story ah. of that uh, of that character um, from that book. I did not know that. Um, but yeah, that makes total sense and matches certainly matches Completely. up with the lyrics. Yep. Yeah, um, I do think the end of this song could have done with another pass. This is another one that just kind of falls away. It feels like they didn't really know how to end it. It just sort of meanders a bit. And this is the one with the like the demony giggles at the end, right? The goblin giggles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which you're you're a thumbs up Which or I'm thumbs not, down on I'm the not goblin wild, giggles. Not wild about no. no. <laughs> well, that's we'll, we'll have to agree to disagree on that. <laughs> I thought we might. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and then, okay, so tr- track seven, uh, the, in my opinion, rather unfortunately titled Night Rape. that the title is unfortunate because when you listen to the song first of all musically it could arguably be the best song in the album i think um and when she sings that lyric in the chorus you can't even decipher that that is exactly what she's saying so this was a song that i didn't even know the title of until i went back and looked at it later on oh right right yeah it's like (sighs) musically it's really good the chorus so good great musically and melodically like the chorus is a is a great one this is another really memorable chorus and the song as a whole do you know what musically what i got a feel from dio oh i can totally see that i also got a little mastodon from this yeah, like maybe, I, maybe yeah but yeah i mean just the uh sleepers and dreamers know you're not safe and then boom it hits this frantic like pers- almost like just edge of your nerves kind of riff so good i mean the the tempo is great with this song like musically i absolutely love it and thematically definitely um to me fits along the line of the theme of like things are progressing progressively getting out of control for this person who has you know um sought it remind to me it's very lovecraftian too it's the idea of like this forbidden knowledge that you have pursued and then once you get it it's not what you thought it was and then you can't get away from it and then you have now what has been seen can't be unseen sort of thing and so uh, you know we're at track 7 of 11 and again i think track 5 was the pivot 
Here at seven, things are progressively getting even more out of control. So I, I think thematically it fits, but you're right. I think that title uh, is shocking enough that for some people could put them off the song when from a musical standpoint and for the most part, the the lyrics are not overly graphic to this song. It is literally that one phrase, Night Rape. Right. Well, and it's not even just the the graphic. You just say they're not especially graphic. It's more that it could so easily be misconstrued as uh, kind of almost aggrandizing or endorsing, yes. you know, yeah. and which they're I think not. another track on this album falls in the same category, but yes. Right. Uh, and, and they're clearly not, right. uh, but it's presented in presenting without judgment, which on, you know, in some cases is admirable. I feel this is a case where it's okay to take a side. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's well, okay to take a side again and say, Hey, this is bad. <laughs> you could have called this song possession. And right. It would have fit the same thematic uh, purpose yep. or incubus, this, suck, completely, you know, or yes, something like completely. that, or yeah, yep. you know, it's so again to go back to what you were saying about the lyrics having another pass and this being the debut album. Like, uh, mind you, then again on their second album they have a track called "I Want to Fuck You to that Death." Is true. So- that is true. So clearly, uh, <laughs> there are some times where Jill is. People may have suggested to her, like, "Hey, why don't we do?" Nope, this is what it is, and this is what we're keeping it. So, yep. um, you know, again. That it is what it is, but you're right. I I feel like you could have changed because really those uh that phrase is only repeated a couple times in the entire song, and right. you could have switched that. And lyrically, it wouldn't have it would have taken that away, but at the same time, wouldn't have changed the overall place that this song fits in the story that she's telling. Right. It feels like shock value for the sake of it. Uh, you know, gr- gratuitous shock value, which and is, it happens to be on know, one of the best songs musically on the entire album. Right. That's the which thing. Is a I was think I was thinking this has happened several times actually on albums that we've covered for me anyway. We yep. uh, if you remember we had Leather Rebel yep. which mu- musically is one of the best tracks on that album but such terrible lyrics. Yep. Uh Morning After on the Defiled album. Yep. And uh, was it Arizona on the Scorpions album I think that again like is musically great but just has cringe-inducing yeah. lyrics. Yep. So, yeah, you know, a bit of a theme. Yeah, which, and again, it goes to speak to the importance of lyrics. You know, yeah. like, like yep. they could be, there's plenty of 80s bands that had cheesy lyrics, but you can be cheesy and not be overly offensive, and you can be cheesy and not, so it's like, not that you right. want to always play it safe with lyrics, but from a storytelling right, but, standpoint too, like any writer would kind of tell you the same thing. Like there's, that's why you do edits, you know, that's why you, yeah. you revisit because, you know, especially when you're writing the first draft of a scene, especially as a horror writer, or if you're writing a, you know, an action story or, or something like you're, you're putting everything out there to begin with. And then you sort of get to the place where you're accomplishing what you need to accomplish in the most efficient way possible. And so um, putting people off of a scene because it's overly gratuitous or because it's overly shocking um, can be a bad thing. Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, like I said, musically, this is a great track and it's, you know, I would, if not for the lyrics, I would sort of, you know, use it to recommend this band to Correct. people. Yep. But there is no way, <laughs> there's no way that right. I'm going to be sending people the fucking YouTube link to a song called Night Rape and say, no. you should listen to this band. They're great. No, I think Eight <laughs> of Swords would be a better choice for that. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to happen, you know? Right. Uh, Anyway, so moving swiftly on to track eight, Children. 
I love this song. This song to me conceptually feels almost like a witch hunter that the um that she's warning the kids about. That's what that's like right, that's right. kind of what it feels like to me. And and maybe it's just because I'm I'm trying to set the scene that is more palatable for the next song that comes after this. But, uh, right. but yeah, it does feel, it feels like the kids are being told almost like a, like a, like a scary story about like, you know, if this person comes here, you just run, you stop everything you're doing, you run, you get away from them. And, uh, and yeah, I'd like, I feel like from a lyrical standpoint, this song is much, it's clear the story that it's telling it's uh, and it captures the feel especially the way she delivers the lyrics. And this is where she kind of descends into cookie monster territory a little bit here when she's screaming run, but it feels like a song that's telling you to run. And I feels urgent. I love it. The urgency of it is so good. Don't sleep. Don't wait. Run. Um, I just, I think the song works overall really well. It has a bass intro as well. The only song on the album that has a bass intro, which is nice. It doesn't go where you think it would. No, because then it has those furious blast beats and the drum roll, uh, which is very nice. I like the chorus. Uh, the bit that really works for me, actually, that you just mentioned is when she growls, don't sleep, don't wait, uh, because I think that sits right. What what she does here is the rest of the chorus up till that point is actually sung in a sort of offbeat kind of way. The phrasing is slightly off the beat. Yep. And then she sings or growls, don't sleep, don't wait, on the beat. But because the rest of the chorus has been off the beat, it feels like that's the unusual offbeat line, even though it's actually on the rhythm. Right. Which I think is really... I mean, I don't know whether that's a conscious choice, uh, you know, to sort of deliberately subvert it that way, but it works totally for me. I think that's really effective. Completely. Um, the solo is okay, but to, what would have made it more interesting to me, you know, at the end, the very last couple of bars, suddenly the solo ends with blast beats going under it. Can you imagine if the whole solo was done under these furious, fast blast beats? I think that would have made it more interesting and more you know effective. I um, I think I agree. I mean it's what's interesting though is it almost feels like the the part that's not the blast beats is like if you can imagine the kids running the whole time like they they're catching their breath but then like you only have a second to catch your breath and then boom you're right back to the frantic like you can't stop you have to keep going. So I I kind of like the flow of that but I totally could see how if you just kept that you know going straight ahead that then the song would have been relentless. Right, right, and more like you know running. Uh, this sort of the feeling again of urgency and needing to sort of escape. But one of the things I do appreciate about this song is that it is nice and short. It does not hang around. Yep, uh, and it is memorable. It is another of one of the few that stuck in my memory. I couldn't have sung the chorus back to you, but I definitely remembered it. And when I heard it the second time, I was like, oh yes, this one's familiar. I remember this one. Well, and just the um, way she sings the final, when she sings, says run, run, run three times, is she singing it in a way that almost feels like it's backwards. You know what I mean? Like, it's just this frantic run, run. Like uh, that right, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I really like that. Huh? Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, no, that's a, that's a fair point. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I'm, <laughs> let's move on to a song that it sounds like you're not very keen on, and I can uh, guess why, called Terror. Terror. To run or hide. Your screams never die. Memories last for life. 
Well, I'm here's what I'm keen on. Much like the song two songs ago that we talked about, that with the title that not, shall not be mentioned again. Uh, from a musical standpoint, I adore the main riff. The the, the like I love everything about the song, and I I but it's hard to not visualize what she's singing some about. of the some of the gun related incidents that we've had here in the states when you hear the song it's just hard to and that's me bringing my own baggage to this particular song because in all of the other songs on this album we're talking about a time and a place that is not now and not here and so to to believe that this song was supposed to be about some sort of a massacre that happens at a school when every other song in the album is about witches in the woods and on the banks of, you know, uh, right, oceans right. and far off lands, I don't think that that's what she's going for. But much like the Night Rape song, when you you have to be careful the images that you conjure, especially if you're trying to keep a theme, because this, you know, the, from a lyrical standpoint, this can kind of derail the atmosphere of everything else that you're trying to do. Wait, are you saying you don't think that this is supposed to be about a school massacre? Because I don't see how it can be about anything else. Well, that's just the thing, right? But how does that fit with every other song on this album? Well, it doesn't, but maybe this is one of those songs where somebody else brought the concept to her. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Because wouldn't you put this at the, like, wouldn't this be either at the end of the album as kind of an extra track or something like that? Like, if if you're trying to craft uh, a theme for this album, like, how could this song about a modern day shooting incident at a school fit with anything else that you've done on this album. Like to me, it's just so thematically, if that's what it it was, it stands out like a sore thumb, Yeah, like a sore thumb. And so again, if you're not reading the lyrics and you're just listening to the music, it fits perfectly within everything else that they've been doing on this album. It fits, it flows well with the other side. Musically, it fits absolutely perfectly. So what, is this really, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's hard to think that it's about anything other than a shooting that happens in a school. Yeah. I, I don't look at the lyrics. I don't see how it can. I don't see how you could possibly interpret it any other way. Um, which is where, which is where I g- was going back to the song children before where you have the children who are running from this man who are trying to flee from this man. And then in some ways, the man catches up to them. In right, in, but the you know, but the imagery, but the imagery in that song, yeah, is all kind of you know clearly about witch trials and things like that. You know, he's a hunter, and uh, you know what is it? The hunter's blade, and it's all about stars and the lake. You know, ducking right. for the witch trials and things like that. So it clearly, you know, very very different imagery. And then yeah, you know, the imagery here is not. I mean, she literally sings "School is out forever." Uh, you know, in the chorus, there's not, it's not subtle. Um, right. Which is a shame because I mean, it's got a lovely intro, this track, very, very atmospheric musically. It's not my favorite. I think it feels to me, it feels kind of disjointed. Like there are lots of separate pieces that don't quite fit together, but do you know what it reminded me of? Judas priest. Huh, we, okay. Uh, you know, again, talking about diverse influences musically, this really made me think of a Judas Priest style. It song. reminded me of Megadeth a little bit. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just the way uh, the drums, in particular, and the way the riff kind of goes over the drums, reminded me of uh, of Megadeth. Right. Um, and I, I like the melodic riff under the final solo. 
how like th- this is one case finally where the riff is not just functional and actually has its own melody uh, right. over which the solo you know tops and i think that works really well the solo itself is you know doesn't actually do a lot for me but i like that they finally have that juxtaposition of two melodies that complement each other going at once and i feel like the song ends like again i don't i don't think her purpose is to glorify anything here because i think the way the song ends is in a very mournful and sort of somber and yeah. um you know almost uh yeah, you could just feel the emotion in the end of the song, which, again, may give it that disjointed feel from the rest of the song, but it certainly ends on a note of you are meant to feel the emotion of that. So, I don't. So again, it's kind of one of those things where debut album, first draft, maybe not enough passes, like there, this is a, a, a song that maybe could have gotten to a different place and accomplished what it wanted to accomplish with some changes lyrically that would not have conjured um, an image that threatens to derail the theme you've been kind of right. going along with the entire album. Or could have just been dropped from the album. You know, we've talked about that before to- as well. Correct. It's, it's, I mean, you know, and musically, I know you, you like it musically more than me, but also musically, it's not a track that I would have missed necessarily if it hadn't been on the album. So, but like you say, you know, debut album, you, you just kind of, you live and learn. <laughs> so track 10, The Tower. Yeah, which again, if we're going on the theme, you know, witch versus hunter, like you're, you, to, to me, I, this kind of is almost like the boss battle that's about to happen, right? Know, yeah, yeah, in that yeah. in that thing. Uh, and from a musical standpoint, like this song, I could sort of take it or leave it. It's not, um, huh? It's not one of my favorites on the album. It's also not a song that I dislike. It it doesn't move me. I think either way. Interesting. Okay. And this again, highlights the differences between because this is my favorite track on the album. Oh, okay. This is the other track I mentioned. That's like, again, it's, isn't it weird how like my favorite tracks are track two rather than track one and track 10, not track 11. Um, and track five smack bang in the middle, but yeah, no, this is my favorite track on the album. I think it, it has the fade, the fade in intro, which you really don't hear much of anymore, uh, which could I only actually be- had a note that said, love the fade in. Right. It could only have been better if it had been backmasked 
Can you imagine if those guitars oh, had been backwards? Yes. Oh, how good would that have been? Uh, the pre-chorus, I think, is fantastic. The guitar and the vocal melody work really well together there. The chorus itself, I think, is the best on the album. Now, it's not, like I said, the one that I remembered after the very first time I listened to the album, but having now listened to it, obviously, you know, quite a few times, this, to me, is the best chorus on the album. It, the riff is great. It's got a galloping double kick on the drum, the vocal melody, and even just the sort of storytelling atmosphere within the chorus itself. It all, for me, it all clicks and works perfectly together. Uh, and it feels like an epic track. I mean, it's the longest track on the album, or one of, um, and it feels like an epic track. So yeah, I am, I am all in on this track. I love it. Well, I'm interested to hear then what you think about the final track on the album. Yeah, track 11, The Dark. Which I absolutely love, because to me, it is the culmination of everything that we've sort of built up to. I mean, there's a dual meaning here. She's She has said, uh, Jill has said that she this, to her, is a song about depression, uh, which makes perfect sense when you, you know, read the lyrics and things like that. But it also is kind of a culmination of the idea of the spell eater being consumed by the thing that yep. they have been consuming. And so I, I feel like it all sort of comes together here. And... I love I love the chorus to it. The solo feels very Megadethy to me, um, which might be a bad thing to you, but for me, for me, like <laughs> it's a good thing. Uh, but I, again, I don't think they overdo it. Whereas, like Megadeth, you know, one of the criticisms leveraged against them is that it's uh, it, to maybe too much emphasis put on the solos here. I don't feel like any song on this album puts too much emphasis on the solo. I don't. I don't in no. any way feel like this album is built around, or even on sort of technical wizardry sure. in the way that yeah, a lot of Megadeth tracks feel like okay. Now listen to Dave showing off, right. and you know while they are clearly very, very talented and technically accomplished musicians, you never get the impression on this album that they are showing off in that sense. But I love the chorus: "The dark, the dark, the darkness falls on you," and just the way that she sort of delivers that, I think, is really great. I just, I think it's a. Uh, Maybe it doesn't have the thunderous punch of some of the other songs, but I do feel like it's a good culmination of of the story that they've been telling to this point. I think it's a, a good final track in that it feels, it fits as a final track. Uh, again, you know, good intro. I like how the guitar comes in 
to start with, and then the drums sort of join in halfway through yeah. a bar. That's nice and unusual. Um, but unfortunately, the rest of the song, the verse, uh, I don't find very interesting. All the chorus, I don't find very interesting at all. The pre-chorus, the shadows fear the dark bit, to me, is, is actually more interesting because uh-huh. you've got that guitar melody from the intro playing underneath that. And I think that is, yeah, just more interesting to me. The rest of it, uh, yeah, just doesn't really do it for me. And it's a weird ending as well. Like you, you'd expect, or I expected anyway, some kind of big riff and drum blast and a real kind of explosive end to the album. And instead it, it just kind of fades. It just kind of goes away. Um, and yeah, you know, again, put it down to debut album. I think that's just, that's a little disappointing. That said, I do think this is a better choice of final track than if they'd put, say, The Tower at the end. Right. You know, I, I think The Tower's a better track, but it wouldn't have been a better album closer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, uh, I think we're both in agreement that it's a good closer. I, I think I probably liked it a little bit more than you, but uh, but that's seems to be par for the course for us with, yeah, but, with some of this. So it's like, like, that's, isn't that the point that of the show? That is the whole I mean. point of the show. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If anybody's wondering, by the way, uh, the the two lines of the two words of German in this song, "Nacht" is just night, and "Verborgen" just means hidden. Yeah. It's just German for hidden. Uh, so you know, it's black covers me, "Nacht Verborgen." That makes sense. Yep. Um, so yeah, overall, as we said, I think this shows promise. If I'd heard this, I mean, I did hear it. You know sort of as my first exposure to the band. And yeah, my overall impression was there's some good bits on that. There's some not so great bits. There's some bits that need tightening up, but it's a debut. And so I am willing and interested to hear more and see if they've, like I say, developed in a way, I don't want to say better because that's obviously a value judgment, but developed in a way there is more to my taste. Yeah, the second one is a little less D&D and a little more Spelljammer. You know, in terms of being, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's just a little more cosmic. You know what I mean? And then I think Deep static is probably the nerds. Yeah, static uh, <laughs> is is a little more sort of in the middle. So I, I, you know, the thing, and again, I have to listen to the other two albums more. But what I like about this, that I think is ambitious about this, is I like the thematic storytelling that they sort of yeah. went for in most of the songs on this album, and that is the thing I want to see them play into more. Now, the good news is I don't think they've shied away from any of the occult stuff as we move forward, which I think is a big, you know, piece of this band, obviously. So um, I haven't listened to the other two enough to be able to sort of weigh in on anything other than the fact that from a sound standpoint, they seem to have refined things as they moved forward into the next couple albums. So, um, so right. yeah, but if you, if you dug this first album, then I would absolutely say that you should check out the other ones. And even if you think that there's promise, I think you might find that um, you enjoy the direction they go in. Yeah, I'm certainly going to try, as I say. It's, uh, you know, I'm not as bowled over by this as I was by, say, the Sister Sin album that we did, uh, where I instantly became a fan. Uh, Whereas this, I would say, you know, I'm kind of, I I could be a fan, but I would have to see how they've developed. But I am at least willing to, to see how they've developed. You know, there's the potential there for sure. All right, so uh, let us close out then. Before the homework, uh, just remind everyone that you can find the show at thrashitoutpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word. Rate us on iTunes or the Google Play podcast store. If you want to become a patron and help us keep thrashing, you can go to patreon.com slash 
thrash it out and support us for the low, low price of just $1 per episode minimum. That's um, pretty low. It really is, especially these days. Uh, <laughs> you can find links to our email, uh, the show email, and our individual Twitters at thrashedoutpodcast.com. And the Facebook group, of course, is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out we hope you've enjoyed this and now i think most of our listeners i think it's fair to say are probably going to enjoy the next episode as well because uh you know and anybody who's a regular listener will know that my theme for this volume has been albums that changed metal now as i've explained before and i've said had to say several times in the facebook group we cannot possibly cover every album <laughs> that falls under that qualifier right. we would be here until the end of time um you know so they have to be albums that you know that i like as well and that i feel really sort of merit inclusion in that list that said with this album i am bowing to pressure a little because I know so many people want us to cover it. And, you know, we were going to do this band at some point anyway. I I'm know getting we were. excited. Uh, so, yeah. So we are going to do Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast. Yes. Oh, I'm very, very, very excited now. Yeah. It's, you know, as as regular listeners know, I am not the biggest Maiden fan in the world. I like them. No, but I, I would be the Maiden chooser, you but know? you're absolutely right. right. If you're going to talk about albums that change metal, then you have to include Iron Maiden in that discussion for sure. Right. You've got to talk about this album, I think, if you're going to talk about albums that change metal. And so I was almost hoping that you might choose it earlier in the season so that we could kind of cover it without using up one of my slots, as it were. You know what, but, though? It's good that you chose it only because if I had chosen the Maiden album, it would have been somewhere in time because that right. was the first one that I went out and bought. And, right, and right. people would have been pissed because they would have been like, why are you covering <laughs> yeah. somewhere in time? Why don't you cover one of these other albums? So uh, yeah. I'm glad that you chose that because it, it takes the... Uh, no one's going to throw pressure tomatoes at me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, as I said, I know that we have a lot of people listening to the show who are much bigger Maiden fans than me, frankly, and they have wanted us to do a Maiden album for a long time. So this is for all of them. And like I say, I do like it. Don't get me wrong. It's a great album, you know. Um, so yeah, next time, that is what we will be talking about. And that will be, realistically, that's probably going to be in the new year. I don't think we're going to get around to that before the holiday season. But what a great uh, holiday album to be listening to as you're, you know, exactly. going about your shopping or wrapping presents or however you celebrate the that's, holidays. That's what I was going to say. As you are unwrapping your gifts, uh, you know, why not have uh, Mr. Dickinson screaming his lungs out in the background of your Absolutely. Land? <laughs> All right. So until then, uh, have a great holidays, everyone, and uh, keep thrashing. We'll see you next time. Take care. <laughs>